Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. In recent years, there's been a lot of buzz about the potential to see more automation in agriculture. We've seen new technologies emerge like Swarm Farm and Raven's OmniDrive autonomous grain cart that make driverless equipment seem closer to being a reality in the field than ever before. So with these technologies on the horizon, it's important to be thinking about what it's going to take on your farm to be ready to take advantage of the opportunities when they arise. We have Dr. Scott Shear joining us today to discuss what he sees as the potential benefits and challenges as automation becomes more common in agriculture. So Scott, could you take a minute and introduce yourself to our listeners? Certainly. My name is Scott Shear. I have the fortune of serving as the chair of the Department of Food, Agricultural, and Biological Engineering here at Ohio State. Um, If you look at my research background over time, it's been about automation, and most specifically, what I'm most interested in is removing the human equipment operator from that environment, the environment on the machine. Um, And I've been projecting um, that we're going to see the day that is beginning to unfold right now uh, for a number of years, but there are a couple driving and influencing factors. So can you tell us about the current landscape in automation? When I look at what's happening in industry today, there are two or three what I consider to be watershed events. What's a watershed event in the the case of automation? We know as we look around the world, there are about 25 or 30 companies that are um, advocating for autonomous field machinery. And they have several projects ongoing. Um, Some of these are conceptual Some of these are actually in production. But when I talk about watershed events, there are two most recently that I think um, has, they both changed the entire landscape. One of those was CNH Industrial at the end of 2021 purchased Raven. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, Raven was building out their portfolio in terms of autonomous equipment. They bought DOT out of Canada, a fully autonomous tractor. They also uh, purchased AutoCart, which was the uh, autonomous grain cart. Um, now those are both those companies or both those product lines, if you will, are under the, the purview of CNH Industrial. Then shortly after the, for, uh, the first of the year, Deere announced their autonomous 8R. And you know when you begin thinking about it, you have um, two of the three major equipment manufacturers worldwide now that have a stake in automation. And when I say a stake in automation, they have products that, are either in the marketplace or very soon will be in the marketplace. And and these products essentially have removed the human operator from the uh, field environment. That's pretty exciting. What do you think is the reason that the time starts to feel like maybe it's it's now that they're making these moves? There are the confluence of two or three factors have kind of come together. And uh, one of the concerns in terms of automation has always been the cost of um, computing on the machine. And that's come down. That's a fraction of what it was uh, 15, 20 years ago. The other thing is we have AI that is being readily adopted, again, because computing power um, is is very cost effective. AI in this case is artificial intelligence, and and I'll be happy to expand on that. Um, If we look at what happened as a result of the pandemic, um, one of the new driving Um, concerns in agriculture is finding enough uh, skilled labor so that farmers can be uh, timely in their field operations. And so it's a confluence of factors. Uh, For a number of years, I was advocating for the fact that if we go to um, 
autonomous machines, again, removing the human from that uh, field environment, that allows us to go smaller and that compaction or the lack of compaction or reduction in compaction would actually drive the process. Um, I think everybody recognizes that um, the, the, the machinery manufacturers continue to sell increasingly larger equipment. Combine's now close to 800 horsepower. We have uh, uh, track tractors in the field now over 600 horsepower. So as, as I look at the combination of these features moving forward, I, I wonder how the landscape changes and uh, what these companies begin doing. And again, I'll remind everybody is the fixed frame, high horsepower tractor, I'm talking about the 400 horse um, front wheel assist tractor is, is the bread and butter for a lot of these companies. So farmers really like driving equipment, especially at harvest time. I mean, that's one of the reasons they enjoy their job. So how do you see this being adopted? What someone want to consider when they're thinking about adopting autonomous technology? I'm going to remind uh, everyone that uh, when, when a company like John Deere or CNH Industrial or Agco sell a tractor, I'm projecting that, that tractor is going to have a life of about 2,000 hours, um, it, it, a mechanical life. In other words, if we realize the full utility of that capital purchase, um, it's going to be 20,000 hours of operation in the field. We know that today um, a lot of farmers in the Midwest are using a tractor, um, and I'm going to use an 8R or a Magnum tractor, or maybe a Fent Vario as an example here. They're going to use it anywhere from three to 500 hours a year. If I take a machine with a 20,000 hour life and I divide by 500 hours, that means that that tractor is going to be around 40 years. Okay? We know that equipment turns over in the used market. We know that there's a lot of um, farmers that are not farming with brand new equipment. You know, we get that. So as, as we watch automation come into the industry, I think a couple things are going to happen. Um, first off, we're going to be looking at technical obsolescence as more determining the life of a piece of equipment as opposed to um, the mechanical life. And I liken it to the cell phone technology. Most of us get new cell phones every three years, not because the old one quit working, but rather because of the features on the new cell phones. And so we have to think about how uh, technological obsolescence is going to affect agriculture as well. There's no doubt in my mind that equipment's going to continue to turn over and there's going to be people, uh, farmers increasingly, um, getting more features on equipment um, as the used equipment rolls in the market. The example I'm going to use is if you buy a new John Deere 8R tractor today, it comes with auto steer. It's not an option anymore. It's baked into the price of the tractor, which means as that piece of equipment continues to roll over increasingly, there's going to be more and more farmers using auto steer just because it's a feature that comes with the used equipment. Um, so, so as time goes on, I think the real question becomes um, what new technologies come to the forefront in terms of um, technologies such as artificial intelligence? Um, we look at Deere's smart spray, and, and, and we begin to think about the possibility of reducing herbicide application by um, 80%, which is pretty significant. And as these technologies uh, come into existence, the question is, what machines are going to be replaced because of these new technologies. And so I think that's one of the things that's going to be a, a driving factor in the marketplace. Obviously, if, if new technologies are not coming along, then uh, I think the, uh, the, the useful life of equipment is going to be extended over what we might think of in, in terms of technical obsolescence. Yeah, I think there's some interesting trends that we see, too, in the types of technologies that are being automated first. Like, I love riding in the combine. 
but I do not like riding and driving the green cart. I get yelled at when I'm in the green cart. So <laughs> that being one that they choose as making autonomous, I think is a smart choice on their part. Yeah, good point. Well, I, I think when we look at operations that are well-suited to automation, I begin thinking about some of the simpler ones, spray application being one of those. As long as you get the right mixture in the tank for the correct crop and, and you're calibrated well, um, there's no question in my mind that the machine can go through the field, spray the field with um, little negative impact in some respects. Now, as we go to planting operations, uh, I'm gonna, um, that becomes a little bit different because you want to ensure that that planter is working correctly. And, you know, we all know about the, the row cleaner that gets the stick stuck in it. And, you know, you, you have no choice but to stop the machine, get out and pull the stick out. Um, we also know that there are a number of tillage tools where we'll get rocks caught up or the, uh, the tillage tool will begin to collect or accumulate um, uh, crop biomass, um, resid crop residue, if you will, and then they'll plug up the tillage tool. Those cases are still going to be, um, I think they're, they lend themselves to automation, but we also have to think about tending that equipment in the field to make certain that it continues running. 24-7, um, and that's where the utility of the benefit of the um, automation technology is going to come from. Um, harvesting with combines, um, we've seen a fair amount of automation. We see machines that adjust themselves today for grain quality. Um, th there's a lot of technology on a combine today, and we keep moving towards being able to remove the operator. Now, when we remove the operator, that's going to be a good question. Um, th there are going to be some technologies that have to be developed to support removing the human operator from that environment. Um, most of us know that, you know, a farmer sitting on a tractor, there's vibrations, there's sounds that give them clues as to something that may be going wrong in terms of that field operation. And, and so as we think about replacing the human, we have to think about the, the full set of um, the full set of sensing technologies and uh, perception technologies that we're going to need to replace the human operator. I think a lot of these machines will be um, monitored from a remote location, but I think that one human, instead of being in the field operating a single machine, may be in a remote location monitoring the operation of maybe a half a dozen or a dozen machines. And that's when I think things change quite a bit. So is that those next steps and those sensors and making sure the safety is in place, is that kind of what the holdup is right now or what, what really needs to happen in the next few years to get this onto farms? Um, I look at, there are some companies that are evolving right now and uh, the term that I think we knew, farmers are gonna have to get more comfortable with is farming as a service. I kind of liken this to software as a service. We're moving from a, a point in time where software is installed on a laptop or a desktop to a point where we access software in the cloud. Um, if we think about accessing services, especially for automation of field operations, I think farming as a service becomes a viable option. I point to uh, Sabanto, which is operating in the, the, uh, the northern part of Illinois, but they've automated the operation of uh, several small Kubota tractors for seeding soybeans. If you look at the pressures on farmers and, and, you know, here we're into another cropping season in the state of Ohio and we we're off to a very wet start for the spring, but um, increasingly there's pressure on farmers to, to essentially plant their soybeans first and then plant their corn and try to get that all done by the middle of May. Well, you look at where we're at uh, approaching the middle of May in the state of Ohio 
and you begin to appreciate the pressure. Sabanto's kind of found a niche seeding soybeans. And we know that if we can get the soybeans in the ground early in the, in the growing season, that the upside potential on yield is, is uh, I'm going to say, better than it is in some case uh, for the corn crop. And, and so there are going to be some, some factors that influence and drive this automation. And it could be that farmers simply purchase a service. In, in the case of Sabanto, they're not selling autonomous equipment, they're not selling software, but they're pre- performing a service on a, a per acre basis for a farmer. So I think that's where automation is going to come from uh, initially. The, the other thing, and one of the impediments right now to automation, is tending that equipment in the field. And I want to remind everybody, if you, if you can't uh, supply seed to that autonomous tractor that's in the field, it's going to stop. And it's not going to continue to perform its function until somebody goes and refills the seed. And, and so while we've um, moved and made significant strides in, in terms of being able to automate the equipment, one of the areas that not enough people are paying attention to is, is what we have to do to tend that equipment and keep it operating in the field. Uh, fuel, fertilizer, seed, chemicals, whatever the case may be. Uh, I always talk about moving mass to or away from these machines as they perform their function. And, uh, you know, the simple ones, spray operations, maybe a tillage operations, um, we're going to have to be a little bit more cognizant of the need um, to uh, supply that machine with the necessary inputs at the correct time so it continues performing its function. Um, we can till, we can plant, we can do a lot of things 24-7. You have to be careful, though, because the same is not true for harvest. And I point to soybeans as being one of those crops that we have several hours a day that we can harvest soybeans, but um, when, when the dew sets in or when the humidity increases at night, we're going to have to stop that type of operation. So um, we're going to work through these processes. Um, the retail sector is going to figure it out in terms of, of how they supply these machines, but it's going to be a bit of a different look to agriculture in the future. So the logistics aspect of it is interesting just in and of itself. But another challenge that you speak on pretty frequently is access to broadband in rural parts of the United States. So how do you see that being a barrier to getting automation on farm? I think it's significant. Um, I I think that um, when we look at internet access in, in, I'm going to say rural Ohio, and I'll confine my comments to the state of Ohio here, um, I know that when I'm in Northwest Ohio with my cell phone, I drop calls all the time. And, and so that tells me, um, because I know that voice has, has priority in terms of wireless communications, that tells me that, that um, we're kind of on a collision course here where there could be a lot of technologies that our farmers don't have access to because of lack of internet connectivity. Uh, we know that um, a lot of our dairy operations in the state of Ohio, as they transition from, I'm going to say, um, the use of human labor for milking operations to um, automation, and, and specifically when I think of robotic milkers, when I think of robotic feed carts, um, a lot of that technology um, requires internet connectivity to function properly. And, and so moving forward, one of my biggest concerns right now in the state of Ohio is broadband internet access. My understanding that John Deere 8R tractor needs 5G connectivity. And so when you begin thinking about where is 5G available in the state of Ohio, um, we can probably draw a couple lines parallel to I-71 between Cincinnati and, and Cleveland, and that gives us a zone that 5G is, is available in, and probably 30 miles east or 30 miles west of that uh, 
I-71 corridor is, is where a lot of the 5G is concentrated in, in the state of Ohio right now. Um, I'll also make a comment about right now, um, when we think about 4G LTE and, and 5G, it is uh, companies that are providing those services. We also know that, um, that there's a possibility of private 4G LTE and perhaps private 5G networks. A little bit of a different look, um, but that's going to require that farmers own the hardware and there's going to be some uh, uh, coordination with the FCC that has to occur. Um, once those carriers, my understanding, once those private 4G or, or 5G LTE, 4G LTE or 5G networks are hooked to a, a commercial carrier, then they um, are in control of those, uh, those private networks. And so um, we see a lot of broadband being plowed in, in in terms of fiber in rural Ohio, and I think that that's great. There's no question about that. But I'm also concerned that even if you have fiber to the farmstead, how do you get from there to the tractor in the field? So that last mile problem is going to persist for some time to come. Sounds like it's going to be pretty management intensive to start out, and maybe that's where that service thing comes in until farmers are willing to or have the capacity to implement that on the farm. Yeah, and, and the way I always respond is today farmers have to, 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 to be... Um, competitive business people, they have to be really good at about uh, maybe 10 to a dozen different things. And I'm thinking as we move towards the future, what the farmers are probably going to do, need to do is pick four or five, maybe eight of those things and focus on those and then begin purchasing the other services. And we've already seen that to a certain extent. We know that a lot of pesticides are custom applied. And, and so um, it, it's going to be up to the farmers to determine what elements of their operation that they trust uh, businesses with and as they begin to pay for some of those services. Um, again, I'll go back and I point to Sabanto, farming as a service. If you can get your soybean crop seeded at the same time you get your corn crop seeded, there's, there's an advantage there. Uh, and, and that on the financial, that could be a pretty significant upside as well. So one question real quick before we wrap up. Um, we see this big push for electric vehicles. So where are we at with electric tractors? Um, electrification is going to occur in the agricultural sector. I think the real question is, is where do we see it first? We're going to see it first on um, vehicles that are used on a daily basis, but are not used um, uh, for extended periods of time. What I'm really trying to get people to think about is, um, some of these electric vehicles, if we can use them for four to five hours each day and then recharge them, and I'm going to think about a feed cart on a dairy farm would be a good example. You're going to feed uh, several times a day, but you have the opportunity to recharge that vehicle between feedings. Those are going to be the, the, the first applications that we see electrification. The, the issue is with high horsepower tractors, though, when we look at needing that tractor to operate 16, 18 hours a day, and it's high horsepower, that's a bit of a different situation. I think the diesel engine is going to continue and persist on farms for some time to come until we see a significant breakthrough in battery technology. We need about six and a half times the volume of battery storage right now, and I talk about volume in comparison to diesel fuel, so that kind of gives you a feel. Oh, wow. If I got a fuel tank that's 400 gallons on a, on a large four-wheel drive tractor, I'm going to have to multiply the size of that fuel tank by a factor of 6.5 to get batteries That's that, that batteries. will sustain. <laughs> we and talk so, about compaction. Well, and, and, and so therein lies part of the problem with electrification. Now, 
I think we're going to move to electrification on vehicles, but we're still going to be using the diesel engine to drive a generator. So a lot of our steering, a lot of our hydraulics might disappear, and then we'll be using um, electric motors um, to, to drive pumps and things like that on planters. Um, that electrification is going to continue, but when we see, begin to see uh, breakthroughs in battery technology, we'll see the prevalence of electrified vehicles on farms much more frequently. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. I think it's always enlightening to hear where you think the future is going. Are there any places you could point our listeners if they want to learn more about the work you're doing? We work with several manufacturers, and some of those manufacturers, we have non-disclosure agreements. But the things that we can publish um, on a routine basis, we put in e-fields. And uh, um, I'm a big fan of e-fields. E-fields is looking at technology about how it applies to agriculture in the state of Ohio, um, and we'll continue to, uh, to, to put the things that we can um, into e-fields over time. And so that, that's going to be the first place that I would encourage people. Um, the other thing is we do have some publications coming out. We'll have a book chapter coming out here pretty soon on automation and agriculture. And so we'll try to get some of those things posted on our website as well. Thank you again for joining us. And I'm looking forward to having you back in the near future to see how much of this is playing out. Well, and, and uh, when predicting the future is always kind of entertaining because I'm not, probably not going to be around to see a lot of the future or whatever in terms of what. So I guess we'll, the younger people will, will be the ones that will have to judge whether or not I'm right, right or wrong in my predictions. So anyways, I enjoyed being with you today. Thanks for this opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Hey, podcast listeners. Just a reminder to give us a like or subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to leave us a review also. We appreciate the comments.